0: going to pick up where we left off two weeks ago in John chapter 19. We'll be picking up in verse 28 and much like its recent predecessors, this passage has only one point and I believe that it is a poignant snapshot of fulfilled prophecy, God's sovereignty and God's love on display. We will see that time and time again throughout this passage, beginning right here in verse 28. Take a look with me. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. And so he is fulfilling Psalm 69 verses 19 through 21, by calling for this wine. This is different than the wine he would have been offered as he walked the Via Dolorosa. This was more for cleansing, or rather satisfying the parchment in his throat, so that he could cry out what he is about to in just a moment. But notice how it was offered to him on a hyssop branch. Now this is no accident, because what do we know about the hyssop branch? 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 33 tells us that it was a simple shrub that could grow out of a crack in a wall. And it was also the same shrub that was used to put blood on the doorposts of the original Passover. So here, in the fulfillment of this prophecy and also through John's retelling of the story, we are to see yet again that Jesus is the sacrificial lamb. Verse 30. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head, and he gave up his spirit. Now let's work backwards here. When it says he gave up his spirit, we're not talking about the Holy Spirit here. We're talking about the human spirit. <coughs> that this was the time that Jesus decided that the work was done, and it was time for his earthly body To die. But when we see this phrase, excuse me, it is finished, that is significant. What is it that is finished? Well, I think several things. First of all, all of the work that Jesus had been given to do throughout his entire earthly life and ministry, all of the fulfillment of the law that he had completed on the behalf of his people, what theologians call The active obedience of Jesus. But also in particular what was finished was his work in bearing our sin. And becoming this sacrificial lamb for us. His actual death is what theologians would call his passive obedience. So active finished now passive uh, finished. And when we think about this, this is... It's almost impossible to overstate the importance of what this means. Because in simplest terms, what it means is Jesus has done and accomplished everything that is needed for us to be saved. He has done everything that is needed. And so for us to now become into a right relationship with God, to become friends with God, The work is not for us to do our best and try our hardest and hope that God grades on a curve, but rather turn from our sins and trust in the full and finished work of Jesus and now have all of his active and passive obedience counted upon our account. To experience what Luther and others called the great exchange, that he takes our sin and we take his righteousness. So the implications of that couldn't be bigger. They are eternal. And also the practical implications of that are many. Let me give you just a couple of examples here. I just want to quote this from one of the commentaries I found this week. It was particularly helpful. The exalting Jesus and John commentary. It says, It is everything that Jesus was sent to do in fulfilling the law on behalf of his people... And this substitutionary sacrifice. John the Baptist said that Jesus, here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And now that work as the sin bearer is complete. And when we stop believing that Jesus finished salvation, that is the moment we begin working for our own salvation. Because we'll constantly be wondering what activity we need to do... ...to keep God in our favor. When trials come, you'll wonder if it's because of what you've done. Your relationship with God will devolve into a checklist of do's and don'ts. Do you see how this changes the dynamic of that relationship? If He has done everything to secure your salvation... ...then you will relate to Him as a child of a gracious and giving Father. But if you need to do something... If your view is based on your own performance, then that relationship of love and freedom becomes one of guilt and fear. You'll be plagued by worry and doubt about your standing with God. You'll wonder if he's happy with you today. You'll quiver in the corner of the kitchen wondering what kind of mood your father is in when he comes home. Don't turn God into a vicious and moody father who demands you act a certain way to earn his love. He is kind, he is loving, he is good, and he has done everything necessary for us to enjoy his love and his kindness. As a Christian, your standing before him has been settled by the blood-soaked sacrifice of Jesus. Your hope and your confidence must never be in yourself. And what you've done, it must be in what Christ has done for you on the cross. What a wonderful and powerful reminder of the truth of the gospel. Now, does this mean that we don't work out our salvation with fear and trembling? Of course not. These ideas work together. But we are working from a place of already achieved, not in earning. And that makes all the difference. So we go to God knowing that we are accepted because of what Jesus has done. So when he said, it is finished, he meant it. And we need to take him at his word. So let's step back and let me ask us a question here. How do you need to appropriate that truth tonight? What I've found in talking to people over the years, both in in this church and in other churches that I've pastored and places that I've ministered along the road, everybody's story and what they experience, sometimes even from their own family, particularly with their father, often taints and influences how we hear this truth. But the good news of the gospel is that it is good news to all. It doesn't matter what trauma we experienced on the way to get here. We are where we are by the grace of God. And this gospel truth brings healing for our hearts. So how do you need to hear the good news tonight? That it is finished. Let's think about that. Let's wrestle with that. Let's flesh that out in community group this week. Now verse 31. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, (coughs) the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, that they might be taken away. Now what's going on here? The high day means that it was a special Sabbath, because it was the Sabbath of Passover week. And what they're getting at there is there was a statement in the law back in Deuteronomy chapter 21, verses 22 and 23, that, that basically says, leaving a body out in the open, and someone, uh, as, as they have been punished to the point of death, leaving them out overnight basically defiles the land. And what they were doing here by breaking their legs is that it ended the process of agony that crucifixion was all about. Because what we've learned over the past couple of weeks is that the the torturous death was designed in such a way that the person would be expiring from blood loss or what have you. But over time, they could push themselves up on their legs to keep themselves alive for a while. And the common practice was here is that eventually the, the, the Romans would step in and break their legs which would cause that process to cease because they would be unable to lift themselves and they would die. We're going to find in just a moment that that's what happens to the criminals, but we're also going to find that Jesus has already expired and we'll find out why that is significant. But before we get to that, let's appreciate again the sad irony here that these people are very concerned with keeping the law, making sure they don't violate the principle, after they have just seen to it that the giver of all the principles has been murdered basically by their own hand. Again, it shows the deep depth of darkness that they were walking in. Another sad irony here is that the Sabbath was given to us by God. It was a, a sign of Trusting in God and and yielding from labor to, to know that God would provide. And here they are thinking wrongly about the Sabbath by killing the one that offers the ultimate rest. These truths are not accidental as John shines the light on them. But we find in verse 32 that they are willing to honor that request it says, so the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. And when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and at once there came out blood and water. Now there's a couple of things going on here. First of all. The fact that he had already died and that they did did not break his legs is a fulfillment of another prophecy. Psalm 34 says this, One who is righteous has many adversaries, but the Lord rescues rescues him from them all. He protects all his bones, not one of them is broken. Verses 19 and 20. And so this is prophesied about the Messiah, this section of it. And Jesus fulfills that and not having his legs broken. Now beyond that, this notion here of blood and water, it's very likely and I believe that it is the case that John is highlighting something that hopefully his readers would have picked up on and we need to pick up on as well. He is tying this aspect of Jesus' death to the Exodus and also the Passover as well. Because you remember back in the beginning when they gave Jesus this wine on this hyssop. The blood that flowed from his heart, literally. So think about the imagery there. The heart of God literally gushing out blood. Jesus is the Passover lamb. Seen in that as well. And the thought here with the water. Physically, what's happening here, and I won't bore you with the details, they're pretty gory. But basically, there is a phenomenon that happens when someone dies in the way that he is dying after enduring all that happens uh, through the crucifixion process where this water does form around the the person's heart and in that cavity. This also has a connection to the Exodus as well because you remember, as the children of Israel were out, what was it that god did he provided water for them through a rock and here we see jesus providing water for his people as the true and better rock we also see this same idea this same theme of jesus offering living water throughout the book of john we saw it in chapter 4 verses 10 through 14 the woman at the well and he offers water to anyone who is thirsty chapter 7, 37 to 39. And there's a, a, another fulfillment of what is being said here that you find in Isaiah chapter 48, verse 21. This is talking about the Messiah. They did not thirst when he led them through the deserts. He made water flow for them from the rock. He split the rock and the water gushed out. And here, figuratively and now literally, literally, The true rock is being split and the water gushes out. Now let's think about what that means for us. A couple of applications. First one, I think, is the continuity of the Bible. Just another reminder that the God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. It's one story Going in God's direction. He is prophesied, he is fulfilled. He is prophesied, he is fulfilled. And as we go through life, we encounter things and we wonder what God is up to. Can he be trusted? We see all the things in our culture today where it seems every institution in some way is in decay. We wonder, can our leaders be trusted? No matter what questions we might have about any of those things we see the true God of the Bible reveal His trustworthiness and the veracity of His book time after time after time. And pages and passages like this remind us of that truth again. Now beyond that, this notion of Jesus as the sacrificial lamb. Think about the two things we've already learned on that aspect. Not only is He, the Lamb, but His work as the Lamb has also been finished. You think about what the writer of Hebrews says about this. You think about the fact that the writer of Hebrews, time after time after time, talks about the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice once for all, as opposed to the endless supply of animals in their blood. So God has put forth the ultimate sacrificial lamb in a once-for-all sense. And also this notion, again, of living water. Living water. Think about the water that we drink, concerned about the quality of our water, and we should be. But when we drink that water, we thirst again. When we drink this water, We will never thirst again. And so all of this symbolism, all of this fulfilled prophecy, it shows us the nature of this God and his character. The fact that he's done all these things out in the open. Remember what we learned a couple of weeks ago, that that Jesus was crucified at a very high-trafficked organization, or or, uh, uh, not organization, but a high-trafficked location to the point that the proclamation that was made about him had to be written in multiple languages because there were so many different people there with questions about what was happening. God has not obscured these truths from the world. He has made them available to us. And toward that end, take a look at verse 35. Because John (coughs) makes an interesting statement here. He says, "...he who saw it has borne witness." His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. Now, what's interesting here is John speaks of himself basically in the third person. He does this, uh, and other biblical writers do this uh, as, as well. He talks about himself as not just someone who is an eyewitness, but someone who is bearing witness. One writer that I consulted kind of said it like this that in so doing, John ascends the witness stand, places his hand on the proverbial Bible, and proclaims the truth of what he saw and experienced. He even tells us why he did so that you also may believe. And then he goes further in verse 36 to say this For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. We've already talked about. And then another scripture says they looked they will look on him whom they have pierced." Now we've talked a great deal about the sacrificial lamb imagery. That's part of what's happening here. But he's also picking up on another piece of Old Testament theology, if you want to call it that, that comes from Zechariah chapter 12. If you study that book, you'll see that the message is that the Messiah is coming. And when he comes, he will rescue his people from captivity. He'll be both a priest and a king. And isn't it interesting that in this moment, Jesus is fulfilling priestly duty. Except he is the sacrifice. And he is also Under, or it's at the bottom of the cross, depending on how you want to interpret that. Literal proclamation that he is king of the Jews. So this is exactly like what Zacharias said would happen so long before it did. One quotation here to really drive this home. Chapter 12, verse 10 says this, And I will pour out a spirit of grace and prayer on the house of David and the residents of Jerusalem... And they will look at me whom they pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly for him as one weeps for a firstborn. This was written hundreds of years before Jesus came. Isn't, and isn't that exactly what happens? He is pierced And then there is weeping. And what John is saying here is he's given all these things. He's highlighting what he highlights. So that we might believe. (coughs) Verse 38. After all these things, Joseph of Arimathea. Who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews. Asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and he took his body away. Now, who was this man? Well, what we do know is he was a wealthy member of the Jewish ruling council. It's what Matthew 27, 57 tells us. And this also, the fact that he is the one who asked for his body and carries it away to be buried, is a fulfillment of yet another prophecy. Isaiah 53, 9 says this, They made his grave with the wicked... And with a rich man in his death. But he wasn't the only one who came by. Nicodemus also, verse 39, (coughs) who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So this was significant. And they're bringing this to honor the body, to keep down the smell, so on and so forth. And they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices as is the burial custom of the Jews and we'll talk more about that next week and in the weeks to come with the resurrection but it also says here in verse 41 now in the place where he was crucified there was a garden and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had been laid so because of the Jewish day of preparation since the tomb was close at hand they led Jesus there or they laid Jesus there sorry so I think one question we need to ask ourselves is, is why all this sneaking around well I think some of it was probably cultural and also these men were very smart the cultural aspect if someone was hated and vilified to the point that they were crucified in the way that Jesus was it was not typically smart to be associated with them and with their burial. Because what could happen there is a type of guilt by association. Well, you're wanting to take this guy down, you're wanting to bury him, or you one of his followers too, and you could imagine that how that might go in a mob mentality is he ends up on a cross as well, or stoned to death very soon. So that's part of the cloak and dagger at this point. And you also see the, the, the thing with Nicodemus. Part of what is happening here. Is that clearly. These guys in some way do not approve of what has taken place. We don't know the depth of their disapproval. But clearly there was a respect and some would argue a, a, a faith. That, that has awakened in these men. After all that they've seen and they've heard and, and so on and so forth. And so they clearly, at minimum, want to honor Jesus. And it's very possible that they were likely disgusted by the hypocrisy that we have discussed week after week after week. They could not stand idly by any longer. And they were willing to risk personal safety and life to step in and see that Jesus was honored. Let's also pay attention to one other detail here. Where was it? The place where he was crucified, in that place there was a garden. And isn't it interesting that all of the problems that began in this world that ultimately led to, at least on a human end of things, the crucifixion of Jesus, where did all that begin? It started in a garden. And so, Jesus' life and his solution to the problem of the original garden takes place in a garden. And again, I think that's one of those things where the Lord knows what he's doing. And the Bible, in addition to being true and supernaturally given, is a beautiful piece of literature. And you see what is happening here, and we know, because we know the rest of the story, what's about to happen. The fact that, There's death in the garden in Genesis chapter 3. There's death in the garden right here in uh, John chapter 19. But then there's about to be life come from that garden as well. It reminds us that from disaster, God brings hope. From death, God brings life. From destruction, God brings resurrection. And in these days in which we live... And it sure seems to me like they're getting darker and will get darker. This is the God that we want to lock arms with. This is the God that we need to trust in. This is the hope that we need to have. Both now and going forward. So let's bring all this together. There's a whole lot in this passage, isn't there? Just example after example after example of fulfilled prophecy and connection that many of us coming in here tonight might not have even been aware of. But that's part of the beauty of the scriptures. To see, indeed, just as Aaron taught us last week, it is one story that this master storyteller has been telling since the dawn of time the story of redemption. And this Savior will take anyone if we will turn from our sins and trust in Him, stop trying to save ourselves, and hear His words, it is finished. He's done everything that needs to be done for you to be saved. You need to trust Him. And if you've never come to that place where you've recognized your own spiritual bankruptcy and slid all your chips in on Jesus, friends, let tonight be the night that you do that. In just a minute, when the rest of us take communion, you hold off, but you take Christ. He has finished it for you. For those of us who've already made that, I want to leave us with a quote from the expository commentary that I found so helpful. It says this When we consider Jesus, what do we see? He is no myth, for who could tell a tale of such a hero? He's no invention, for how could such fiction be conceived? He is the Christ born to bring salvation, slain to open a fountain of cleansing. Let us look on him, the one they pierced. He is the lamb of God. His blood alone can cover us and no other sacrifice remains. We must turn from what the world would give us to defile us. We must plea, flee to the place where the blood of the lamb is on the lentil hiding there while the avenging angel passes over and then girding up our loins for this pilgrimage on which we will be sustained by his broken body given to us as the bread of life and his blood shed to make the new covenant let us fix our minds on this destination the new heavens and the new earth where the king alone will reign in righteousness righteousness Friends, doesn't that bring it together? Doesn't that remind us of the poignant power of Jesus shown to us in this passage and every week? So let me close with this question. What is it that the Holy Spirit is impressing upon you from what we've learned tonight? Where do you most need this help? Where do you most need this hope? Wherever it is, let's go to the Lord now and pray. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we are so thankful to gather around your word. To hear the good news of everything that you've done. Lord, it's such a good and encouraging reminder to see just in a very short section of text how many prophecies were fulfilled on that great day. Lord, we thank you that you have been keeping your promises forever. And Lord, knowing the revelation of your character on display in this passage, How can we not trust you? Lord, give us faith as individuals. Give us faith as a church. Help us be faithful to what you have called us to as individuals and as a community. And Lord, may we never step far away from the phrase, it is finished. May that bring light and life to us tonight and forevermore. We pray all this in Jesus' mighty name.